0: Hi everyone, my name is Shannon Calder, Licensed Therapist, and I'm joined by Dr. Kathy Barrett, Forensic Psychologist. We talk about all topics from a psychological perspective. Welcome to Terror Talk. Hi everybody, this is Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Hey Kathy, how are you? Good, how are you doing? Pretty good. Good. Uh, The last we left off, the last episode left off with the LaBianca murders, I believe, right? So
1: I don't think that's anything anyone can forget if they listen to the last episode. No,
0: that's you're
1: probably right. So
0: we left off with what actually happened in the famous Tate-LaBianca murders. And in this episode, we're going to talk very minorly about the case and the arrest. And then a little bit more about the trial And kind of the, sort of the end of the story, basically um, the trial, different things that happened in the trial, because I think that really speaks to still Charlie's control over everyone and the different things that happened. And then a little bit about uh, how he was in jail, interviews and such. And then our second uh, chunk, for lack of a better word, is why we are so fascinated by Manson. So we're going to go into... Um, sort of cult characteristics and what cults have and what they don't, uh, what the difference is between religion and cult. Uh, and then in our last section, we're going to talk about some sources, some things I used to put sort of the narrative together for this series, but also some things I think you're going to want to check out, different series, different, um, like a TED talk, a couple of different books, So we'll go into that and kind of wrap this up with any reflections we may have about the whole series. So that's what we're
1: going to do. How does that sound? It sounds amazing. I'm looking forward to it.
0: Yeah. So continuing in this story is that, um, so the Tate LaBianca murders happened, uh, in the beginning of August and about a week later on August 16th, 1969, out at Spawn Ranch where the family was living, Law enforcement actually went out and raided the ranch and arrested everyone, but they weren't there for the Tate-LaBianca murders. They were there because, uh, well, stolen dune buggies. So (laughs) (laughs) car stealing was, of course, one of the professions that Manson had always had, as we remember from back when he was younger. And they were looking for stolen dune buggies and stolen cars. And they went
1: out and arrested everybody. I just want to make a really quick comment. I think it's ironic with a lot of these, these guys, whether it's Manson or Bundy, and this will come up in Dahmer also, which is they have all these really horrific things going on underneath, but they get pulled over for these seemingly innocuous crimes. And it's like, if the law enforcement only knew what was going on beneath the surface, I don't know if they would get away with that anymore at this point, because there's, there's just more investigations now. But back during these times, um, this happened quite a bit. Yeah, I think I remember that with Bundy, right? Bundy was pulled over um, for something going on with his car. Right. Um, and Dahmer gets pulled over for something very similar, which we'll talk about this summer. So it's just interesting. It is interesting. It's like, so So they get,
0: the the ranch gets raided. They all go to jail um for investigation of stolen dune buggies and 48 hours later they're all released because there's nothing comes of it basically which unfortunately means that they were free to commit one more murder which was the murder of shorty shea he was a ranch hand uh there on the ranch and i'm not going to go into details about that murder but suffice it to say there was a woman named Barbara Hoyt that was part of the Manson family and she worked at the back of the ranch she worked in supplies they had a supply area where if you needed something uh you know clothes or food or whatever you talked to Barbara and she you know checked it out to you or got it to you she had the supply I don't know barn perhaps in the back and she uh the night after they got back from the raid, she heard screaming and it was like the bloody murder screaming that everybody knows is a very bad thing. Not regular screaming or joke screaming. It's when someone's really being harmed and she heard a lot of screaming and she actually recognized the screaming as one of the family members, shorty Shay and Barbara, Barbara Hoyt, um, actually that night, was the night she was like, you know what, I think it's time to take my leave. And that's when she left the family, because, and a lot of people were leaving at this point, because anybody who, I guess, got into it for love and peace, by this point realized that the paranoia, and the fear, and the terror, and all the different things that he'd been preaching, and that he was creating them now, and that this was the time to go. So interestingly enough, they were pulled in, but not for the murders. So. The case went on and on, and then on November 16th, 1969, uh, they were arrested. It had really been a mystery for, what is that, four months, Um, and there's a lot of articles if you go into the LA Times, um, well, now it's all digital, right? So if you go into the LA Times archives online, there's a ton of articles about how the case developed, and it developed from, you know, a lot of articles about ritualistic killings, about um yeah, that's what they thought because of the words written on the walls, uh because of the way they were stabbed a bazillion times. They thought that was this was some kind of ritualistic murder. There was all different theories and I would um I would mention this in the end, but you guys know if you read Uh, Vincent Bugliosi's, Bugliosi's book Helter Skelter, it breaks it down into every minute detail because he was the prosecutor on the case. And that book, and it's as big as a Stephen King book. It's massive and it breaks down, it's very interesting and it breaks down everything about the arrest and the case that they built from day one when they walked onto the Tate property to the day of the arrest. And I would... I would say do that because if we got into that minutia, it would become quickly not about psychology and Mm -hmm. quickly about tracking
1: every moment of that case. And so, so they're arrested. I just wanted to ask, and I don't know if you'll get to this, but is there anything about Manson's demeanor during his arrest? Um, I don't know what his demeanor was. I I could see it going other way, I guess. Well, what I can
0: probably extrapolate in what I know about the way he usually presents is that Mance until the day he died, uh, maintained his innocence. Mm-hmm. He never once didn't maintain his innocence. So I have a feeling that in the moments of his arrest and honestly for a chunk of a chunk of that time, he was pretty much feeling like what is this this is nothing because they didn't really have anything
1: well and everything he's already been through in his life I'm not sure if someone like Manson could even be affected by an arrest oh no he's he'd seen so much and been through so much more that to me this is almost like all right exactly i mean i
0: don't I don't think he was phased at all i thought I think he sees it as theater, and I think he saw it as more attention. i can't even imagine that it in any way scared him or intimidated him or anything I mean that's just not his i mean he spent most of his life in prison at this point he'd been out for two and a half years, but that's the longest stint he'd ever done, and he did that much damage in two and a half years exactly, so we can only imagine if he had ever gotten out, which was never going to happen so So they had, a, you know, they knew what they were doing. They arrested everyone. They were charging them with murder. But, and there is a lot of detail about how they went back and forth. And again, I'm not going to get into that, but because I would, what I would like to pay attention to that is about, about three months past, And the case was um, frustrating. They weren't getting anywhere in, in the sense of, like real evidence and real ability to, to prosecute. Uh, They had enough obviously to arrest, but they, they needed more. They needed a break in the case. And, and it came because about three months passed and 20 year old Susan Atkins, who you may remember as one of the three people that was involved in the murders uh, heavily as one of the killers was in jail for the Gary Hinman murder and remember that Gary Hinman is the first person that they killed that they killed just one guy and Manson came in and sliced off his ear and they were hoping that that would start something and then Manson decided to do the Tate LaBianca murders because there needed to be something bigger right Gary killing Gary Hinman wasn't enough to to do what he wanted the culture to do but Susan was in jail for that murder and she had a cellie or a cellmate whose name was Virginia Graham, who was in for writing bad checks. And she told Virginia Graham the whole story of how she had killed Sharon Tate. She basically said, Hey, do you know who killed that lady? And of course Virginia's like, no. And she's like, well, you're looking at her kind of thing, like bragging, yeah. told her the whole story. And then, and, and ipso facto, Gave them a whole bunch of... And so Virginia, of course, saw that as an opportunity, Mm -hmm. as one would, if one were in prison or jail, uh, and told that story. And I don't know what she received as a gift for telling Mm -hmm. that story, but she told that story. And so by December 1969, they were all charged with murder, meaning Charles Manson, Patricia Kerenwinkle, Leslie Van Houten, and Susan Atkins were all charged with murder. Uh, Which brings us to the trial. That's what I kind of really want to get to. And only because that has more, like, psychological aspects than the rest of it. So, Mance's murder trial began at the L.A. County Hall of Justice. Uh, it was him and, like I said, Patty, Leslie, and Susan, who went by Sadie. And it was apparent to the media, there's some good documentaries um done by television people which i can talk about there's a interesting there's an interesting 2020 there's a a bunch of different ones but the media knew that this trial and story had the element elements of like a cultural phenomenon you know it was a hippie cult leader with three co-defendants from average middle class homes the prosecutor vincent bugliosi had former family member Linda Kasabian. So if you remember, Linda was the woman who went along for the murders, but very quickly when they arrived at the Sharon Tate household, very quickly was like, uh, yeah, no. And then became the lookout outside and really was very disturbed and wanted nothing to do with it. So, <clears throat> what ended up happening is, you know, Vincent talks about how Cassabian was, he kind of characterizes her as the, the only real hippie in the bunch, like looking for happiness and love and, and community and all of that. But of course, that's how it started with the Manson family. And that's not how it ended. And so Cassabian had, I guess, told him that, you know, she always knew that she was going to have to be the one to not so much blow the whistle, but like tell the world the story Mm -hmm. because she had been there and she quickly realized that no one else was going to ever cop to it and that she was going to need to be that person. Mm -hmm. And so as part of the trial, you know, one of the first things that happened was Linda Kasabian took the stand for a week. And, you know, at one point, I guess, during the trial, Charlie says to her, you're lying, you know, he stands up, and he says, you're lying. And she sa- and she just says into the mic, like, you know, it's the truth, Charlie. So she just sat up there and told the truth and she was very believable. And you could tell, at least from the accounts, people say, uh, including the media that have talked about it, say that, you know, she was credible, and she seemed believable. In addition to that, they had recovered some fingerprints for techs, Remember, he's the one that did the bulk of the violence. They had recovered fingerprints of Patricia Krenwinkel and Tex. The issue mainly, or the problem I think that prosecutors were mainly dealing with, was not that they weren't there. You know, the other people were there. Manson wasn't actually there. It was how to tie Manson into this whole thing. Um, how to convict... Charlie, who wasn't present at the murders of the murders. And that was their kind of cross to bear. Um, So he had to link him indirectly to the crimes. If he was going to, you know, Vincent had to link him indirectly. So what he talks about, and he, he, you know, he's talked a lot about the case over the years, including his book Helter Skelter. But what he did was, is he brought in motive and domination. So the motive, um, I don't know what Vincent would say, but the motives that we've brought up around um, being rageful and angry at society, the particular people represented the establishment and also his failed uh, music career and what he wanted from the establishment, what he felt he was owed after so many years imprisoned, uh, he felt very righteous about that. So there was a lot of motive. And then then again, you have to connect him to the people that actually physically did the murders. Mm-hmm. So it's like, how do you do that? Well, it became about establishing domination. So the idea was to demonstrate that Charlie was in control over their daily activities. Mm. And that... so be, So if he's in control over their daily activities then he must have been in control of what they had done that night because he was in control of everything they did. Mm -hmm. And so that was the thing that he was trying to prove. And in other words, if he's dominating them fully, which was what he wanted to establish, then whatever they did was a direction from Manson, which I believe to be true. (laughs) Right. Uh, The rest of the family during the trial, as you no doubt, anytime you Google Manson trial, will see videos of, um, women with shaved heads singing, basically. And what had happened is they had, um, the people on trial had shaved their heads. Well, Manson had shaved his head. Then the girls did it as an order, most likely. And then everybody outside the trial, the rest of the family members who were basically living on the sidewalk out front, all shaved their head, um, in solidarity. So that's why you see, uh, bald women outside singing songs, et cetera. Um, squeaky from who we've talked about very famous member of the Manson family she handled the press and the crowd so there's lots of interviews during the trial of her on the sidewalk talking about whatever they ask her um, she was the one who was saying things like no we did what we wanted to do Charlie wasn't in control of us we did whatever we wanted to do she was trying to hold that line with the press and obviously with anybody who heard about the case so that it would somehow seep into the trial cuz that was Manson's thing was hey they did what they wanted that was mm-hmm. always his his line they did what they wanted man if they didn't want to do it they wouldn't have done it mm-hmm. so the i mean the women have the women that were on trial with him have come forward in lots of interviews over the years to say that their behavior and the behavior of the family members outside of the trial was scripted so when you saw the three girls on trial, you know, coming down the hallway, and I say girls because these girls were like 19, 20 years yeah. old at the time. Yeah. Um, so it's not to be pejorative and not call them women, but literally they were girls. Yeah. And you could tell in their attitude they were girls. But they would, you know, come singing down the hallway. There's lots of famous, you know, they're going to the courtroom and they're all singing in unison some song. So basically any time you saw any of them either inside or outside the courtroom acting in unison that was on Charlie's order a lot of time it was scripted they would they would discuss how they were going to act cuz they'd be in a holding room together beforehand which probably doesn't happen these days but <laughs> it did then and they would they would script what they were going to do
1: i just want to make a comment here, and I know we're going to get into this in a little bit when we talk about cult leaders and things, but um, going back to the trial and how they prove that, you know, Charlie was in fact in charge of all this or orchestrating all this, but these women still saying, no, you know, it was all us. One of the most remarkable things about his profile or a cult leader, you know, your Hitlers, your Warren Jeffs is they, they make these victims believe victims, meaning the cult followers believe that they're fully making their own choice to be part of this, which is part of the grooming. Right. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about this in other episodes where it's like coupling fear with, um, just this warped sense of love and acceptance Mm -hmm. and, and coming at it from like a neuropsychological point of view, how the brain eventually hardwires itself that way then and and then it's hard to break away from it's a, its its own form of addiction and addiction is always coupled with fear right so i think there there's so many psychological elements to how he allowed these these women or these girls um (laughs) to actually believe that this was something of their own choosing now to a certain extent it was to a certain extent it was uh they needing to run away from home and and find this but he did a really good job and never really making them feel like he had this control and they could never leave he actually made it quite open and available for them to leave but he had manipulated them so much and we see this We see this a lot when we look at um, even like the J.C. Dugards and all of these captive stories where these women could actually leave, but they have been so uh, manipulated and bound to believing this is now their life. Um, We've seen it in the Stanford Prison Experiment. Mm -hmm. All of these things where it's like, People And this is where you and I have said this a million times, where people say, well, I would have just left. And if it doesn't work that way. <laughs> so easy to say it that. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> and there's so many psychological elements to that. And I think that people who are listening right now who are going, how the hell did these people stay and how did they not see it? The way the brain works mm-hmm. with trauma and fear and addiction and how all that's coupled together is is really fascinating. It is. And I'm glad that we've touched on it multiple
0: times during this because I think it's a really interesting, it's a really important part of this because a lot of us are going to think that we wouldn't be susceptible. And again, maybe you wouldn't be. I'm not saying that we were, we're all susceptible to it. It's a particular time in your life with a particular sort of circumstances. sensitivities. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about that still as we continue um, because it's, simply true and you know charlie wouldn't want anybody on the ranch that he couldn't dominate fully
1: when well, we talked about in the last episode how the music industry was not the right audience these are people who who were narcissists themselves and yeah. we're like wait a minute no <laughs> try again
0: they're like yeah don't kid a kidder right. <laughs> like yeah not not so much um, but yeah, like I said, Charlie wouldn't want anybody on the ranch that he couldn't fully dominate. So he was constantly testing their loyalty. He was constantly saying things like, "Would you die for me? I would die for you. Would you mm-hmm. die for me?" And he was and he was vetting, in my opinion, he was solidifying the beliefs with the people who were in it, and he was vetting the mm-hmm. ones who were on the on the fence, so that you could like get the hell out if mm-hmm. you because he needed to be able to dominate you, and if he could dominate you, you need to go the hell away. Right. So. There's a few other just trial highlights that I would like to um, mention because it just speaks to uh, Manson psychology. So in August of 1970, um, keep in mind this this trial goes on for many months. I think it's like a seven-month trial. Uh, in August of 1970, Nixon says on national television, which you can Google, Um, Nixon, who was the president at the time, says that Manson is guilty. (laughs) And he talks about him in one of his addresses. And what happens is Manson brings that paper, because there's a big headline on the front of the paper. We didn't have the Internet, remember? There's a big headline on the front of the paper, and he brings that to court, and he basically sits at his desk and holds up the paper where it says Manson is guilty, and he shows the jury. Now, the jury has been sequestered, so he's tainting them. And he's smiling and showing them to it, showing them it. And, of course, Manson's defense attorney immediately calls for a mistrial in chambers. Everybody goes into chambers, as they do on the TV shows. Mm -hmm. And uh, Manson's defense attorney immediately calls for a mistrial. Now, the judge makes a decision to question each juror individually to discuss if they have been swayed by Nixon You know, Mm. Nixon's opinion, basically. So instead of calling a mistrial, he individually interviews each juror. As Manson sits back sort of satisfied with himself, smiling is how it's been characterized, which I can understand. Causing chaos. He loves to cause chaos. What do we know about narcissists? They love to cause chaos Mm -hmm. and drama and, and have everybody fighting with each other. So he's attempting to pull the strings as usual. I mean, that's just who he is. So the mistrial is denied and the trial continues. Um, I mentioned Barbara Hoyt before who left the family, uh, right after the Tate law Bianca murders. So she testifies now, as soon as she was put on the list, there's just a bunch of stuff that happens during this trial. that's like crazy. (laughs) She, she's put on the list to testify immediately. She begins to get threatening phone calls the family's reaching out to her, bullying her, saying that, you know, they're going to hurt her if she testifies. You know, it's all the stuff you would imagine. And at one point, I guess, she's given a cheeseburger, and the cheeseburger has 10 doses of LSD on Jesus. it. So they dope her, basically. And she's she was not one of the everyday trippers back in the day. So... Ten And plus 10 doses of LSD I mean you'd go out of your mind And she did She was out on the streets She she ended up in the hospital basically On death's door And then she still decided to testify Which I thought was amazingly courageous I saw the interview with her And she said you know what I said to myself "How? What am I going to think about this when I'm old Do I want to be the type of person that when I'm old I said I did what I had to do to put these people away. Um, and, and I wanted to be able to look, look back and say, mm. I did what I, I needed to do. And so she part did of her, it.
1: part of her healing process. Yeah, her.
0: absolutely. So she did it too. She uh, testified as well. And, and you know, uh, Vincent talks about her as, you know, as much as she went through and as reluctant as she was to testify because of all the threatening, she ended up being a good witness and a mm. solid solid testifier, which is nice. So through the trial, um, there's one point when Manson jumps over the desk and tries to attack the judge and calls him all kinds of names and tries to stab him with a pencil. There's that whole drama. I mean, they're just, the media talks about how one of the things that was so interesting about this trial was that you never knew what was going to happen. And there was always something interesting happening. It was, so it was just ripe for TV it was ripe for books being written about it. It was just very dramatic and chaotic and it 's no wonder it 's become so famous because we didn 't have cult leaders that were talked about then. This was all very new information for the general public. We hear about them all the time now because there 's been several very famous ones but but there wasn 't at the time. Mm. This was not something that we We discussed very much or at all. And so, you know, people credit Manson with ending, ending the summer of love, the hippie era. They credit him with ending the hippie era because Mm -hmm. these murders really marked the end of that sentiment Mm -hmm. and the beginning of a different sentiment. So Monday, November 25th, closing arguments are set to begin after a 10-day break that they had taken. Um, They had taken a recess for 10 days, a little break in the trial, everybody went on vacation or what have you, and they're back and they're going to do closing arguments and then go to sentencing. Um, And what ends up happening is they show up for the first day of closing arguments and Reynolds Hughes, who's Leslie Van Houten's defense attorney, uh, he happened to be Manson's defense attorney for in the very very beginning but god, then or a, no what yeah. a job and then well yeah right and then was replaced oh god so Leslie Van Houten's defense attorney doesn't show up for court that day after this recess and so they just figure you know whatever he's late etc but unfortunately he doesn't show up the next day or the next day or the next day and he is deemed missing so again, they take a month long break waiting for this guy to show up and waiting to be found because they just don't know what happened. So he doesn't show up. So then again, once again, it's like, Oh, we got have a mistrial. The attorney is not here. You know, we have to have a mistrial. And of course that, that happens in regular cases, but they're like seven months in now. Mm-hmm. And this is really, Oh my God. Can you imagine having me to start this over again? Um, so what happens is the judge has a difficult decision to make, but he makes the decision to continue with the trial and give Leslie a new uh, attorney. And so that happens and they carry on. So Van Houten, Leslie, is extremely upset by this, and she stands up in court, which I have no doubt. I have no doubt this is orchestrated by Charlie. Like, <laughs> it's so... More chaos. It's so chaotic. <laughs> so she stands up in court, and she howls like an animal, <laughs> like a wolf or something, and then begins striking people. Oh she slaps one of the um, <laughs> deputies, and she punches the female deputy that's on her on her six, I guess. And the other defendants join in and they're all removed from the courtroom. So, you know, that just, I don't know, wouldn't be a Manson trial without, my God, all of the drama. But they finish, they finish, they finish the damn trial. And on January 15th, uh, 1971, the trial goes to the jury Uh, And they had nine days of deliberation. And the verdict was that everyone was guilty and they were all sentenced to the death penalty.
1: Wow. Yeah. That must be one of the largest um, death penalties, like the amount of people in one setting that are all getting the death penalty. Yeah, I
0: don't know what the record is for that. But yeah,
1: all four people received the death penalty,
0: penalty, excuse me. And in March, so in January, they all got the death penalty. And in March, the missing attorney's body washes up on the side yeah, that of was the creek. right? Yeah. Ventura County coroner stated that he'd been caught in a flash flood while camping because he went on a, a camping trip for the 10-day right. break and drowned. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, of course as soon as he didn't show up that day with all of the drama, and I've only probably said maybe five of the 50 different things that happened during the trial. Cause that's a whole, that's a whole 10 episodes of itself. If you're into that sort of thing. But, um, uh, as soon the media says, as soon as he didn't show up that day, they were like, yep, the family must've killed him. I mean, that was the, who knows what happened, but that was the folklore of the time. Because I think that everybody by then saw the amount of control mm-hmm. And manipulation that was going on, um, that nobody would have batted an eye if that were true. So, so (sighs) a little too ironic. Yeah. It's a little too ironic. Uh, so yeah, they were sentenced to the gas chamber at San Quentin. That was the idea. Um, the, the women at this point, they talk about how they felt like that was a fitting end to what they had done. So even now they had those feelings of like, well, that's, that's righteous. Like that feels like what we deserve over the next few years. If you watch the, there's some really good interviews of these women over the years. And there's, um, certainly on YouTube, there's their parole hearings, um, there's interviews with them, you know, 2020 interviews and different kinds of interviews that you can look at and you can really see the evolution of a couple of them and then not so much evolution of one of them. Uh, Susan Atkins was really, she flipped her story a couple of times. She, she found God and not that that's a bad thing, but it seems really, uh, when you watch the interviews, you just, you know, trust your gut. It just feels a little manipulative. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do want to mention that in September 5th, 1975, um, Squeaky straps a gun onto her leg, a 45 automatic, and with Gerald Ford visiting San Francisco at the time,
1: she went out and... Now it makes sense why she tried to assassinate him, right?
0: right? Yeah. Right? <laughs> totally. <laughs> Drew the gun and was quickly wrestled to the ground, and there was actually no shell in the chamber. Um, what, what had been happening while they were in prison is that she had been actually getting bullied by them a bit because she wasn't in prison too. And that, you know, Squeaky had lost her family. Like this was her family and she felt guilty for not having, so you just got to get in this mindset, right? Like none this doesn't really make sense to any of us, but she felt guilty for not having participated more that, so that she could go to jail with her family. Like, that's what made sense to Squeaky in her mind. And that, uh, and so, and also the girls and Charlie were bullying her from prison. Like, well, what have you done for Charlie lately? That was kind of the sentiment was that, you know, well, look what we did and look what what we were able to accomplish and, mm-hmm. and what have you done for Charlie lately kind of thing. And so they're all still in that mindset those first five, five six years um, a lot of them talk about it took several years, if not about of a decade, to get their heads out of that mm-hmm. mindset, which makes sense to me. Um, anyway, she didn't even put bullets in the gun, but so she wasn't actually meaning to kill him, but she was out there doing something for the cause, so to speak. Uh, and she went to jail. She was actually the first American woman to go on trial to attempt to kill a president. Interesting. FYI. Yeah. Um, she received life without parole. Which mm-hmm. I thought was super interesting for I think it's because it's the President, yes, there were no bullets, there were nope. no you know, uh, there was really no intent, but I'm not gonna get into the minutia of that. I'm sure that was interesting too. I guess she finally proved herself as a real follower, <laughs> but that's what she wanted, so what I'd like to say is that, in closing to this chunk of the episode and um. I think that working in the mental health field, you know, I had an original plan to go into sort of the interviews and the parole hearings because there's a ton of footage. There's a ton of stuff. So what did I do? I started watching all of it. Well, working in the mental health field, watching hours and hours of footage of him over the years, I have to say. You'll just have to trust me. You can go and watch it yourself, but there's really no point in going into detail about it because it's very repetitive and very crazy. I mean, as a young person, it was really fascinating to me, like um, like it was for the public for five decades now. You know, as we've said, August is the anniversary, unfortunately, of these of these deaths. And it was very fascinating to me. Um knowing but but now knowing what I know about people and about Manson, especially after all the research for this, it just seems it, it seems entirely simple in the end. Charlie's parole hearings and interviews over the years are pure theater. It's um as he created during his trial, he creates spectacle no matter what opportunity is given in the public eye. Um whether it's a parole hearing that you watch, whether it's whether it's an interview, you know, Diane Sawyer, different people went in and talked to him during the eighties and nineties, et cetera. And even later, it's the same. It's, he doesn't show remorse even at his parole hearings in every single interview and every parole hearing, which are, you know, widely available to you. He's like a little kid who was lied to and locked up. It's like the rage that he feels against society never went away. It started when he was 10 and then his mother rejected him and he was sent to, you know, the first boys home or what have you. And you literally look at him and he, that 10 year old boy is right there mm-hmm. at every parole hearing and enter, every interview. He says the same stuff over and over and over again. He says, you know, um, I'm be i I've been punished. You people have been punishing me and hurting me since I was a kid and I'm entitled to be free because of it type of thing. Um, and it's really hard because the the rage he felt against society just started when he was 10 and then just never went away i guess i mean he literally almost always brings up that he's owed an apology by the system it's like mm-hmm. he talks about being punished um for one psychotic episode quote as if as if the Tate labianca murders was a psychotic episode on his part and didn't take years of planning and psychological torture and willing victims and so much um, work for bad, basically, on his part. And he still has no remorse. I mean, till the day he died, he had no remorse, no reflection, no apology, no self-knowledge, no humility, nothing. He was the victim. And that's what we know about narcissists yes. is that they're always the victim
1: there's the, they're the victim unless there's some sort of gain that they will superficially apologize which we saw with Bundy at the end was all horse shit um, right. but you know there are people who really believed his crocodile tears but yeah they don't and, and in a way even his apology made him more of a victim mm. right so mm-hmm. I think that can even be used as a prop uh, the, the, the apologies but Manson didn't even have that I mean he pure sociopath
0: Yeah, all he would do is recount his story of woe, which we have recounted in these episodes. And I'm not saying it didn't happen, and I'm not saying it's a terrible upbringing. I'm just saying that it's fascinating and actually staggering to me sometimes that literally no remorse. He died recently. He was like 82 years old. No remorse, no self-knowledge. He was always the victim, and he was always owed something. Um, An apology by the system. Which just fascinates me. And With that, we're going to take a little bit of a break and we're going to come right back and talk about why are we all so fascinated with Manson? While we take a break, go follow us on Instagram at Terror Talk Podcast, Twitter at Talk Terror, or on our Facebook page, Halloween All Year Long. If you prefer email, it's terrortalkpodcast at gmail.com. So reach out. If you like us, you can help us by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes, or check out our Patreon page. We upload new episodes every Wednesday and Friday. Keep coming back, but first, stick around for more of our show. Hey everybody we're back we're going to have a discussion about why we're all so fascinated with man So I think is something that would be good for us to to dig up here so for those of you who have been on us with us for this six-part journey if you're still listening and you're still into this then you're like us in the sense that we're just endlessly fascinated with these kinds of personalities and so it's I think a good idea to look at why that is I mean at the time I went into it a little bit in the last um uh section but you know at the time it was monumental because it it shifted the culture it was a cultural phenomenon like I said the the murders and the trial was all very new and it ended an era it really marked the end of the peace love and understanding section um the murders the trial the people involved were all so bizarre I guess would be the best word to say. Uh, it was also the the outing of cults and cult leaders that was not something. I mean, now we have Jim Jones, we have a lot of different people, uh, Patty Hearst, all of those kinds of things. The brainwashing that comes with that were didn't hadn't happened yet. Now we talk about cult leaders all the time, but at the time we did not. So society at the time was not accustomed to hearing about any of this. So
1: he was kind of like the Columbine. Of, um, oh, mm-hmm. right. Just sort of the everyone was so blown away by something that we've talked about this in other episodes before, but um, I think it's a sign of the time. So the innocence um, of most people in the 50s, 60s, 70s, we trusted our politicians, we trusted our doctors, we trusted our news, we most it, it was actually cool to be kind at that time, which Manson capitalized on, right? summer love and all this bs Mm -hmm. he used love he used empathy um superficially to lure people in um if anything and you and i have talked about this a number of times which is narcissism has actually become the new world order in many ways where now because we look at kindness as this sort of naive place to be which is really unfortunate yeah um it was very much the opposite at that time people trusted hitchhikers or hitchhikers trusted yes people, people to pick them up so manson was the pioneer mm-hmm. of cult leaders yeah up until that time there was really nothing like it unless uh, other than hitler yeah really yep
0: you know yes you know it it's so i mean it, it's it could also be that you know he represents the shadow right the dark side of society that we we here's what i would say is that we enjoy the idea of pure evil we enjoy the black and white of that because it gives us the answer to why people do things it's we we like things that are easy answers to complicated questions and it gets us just close enough yeah to actually experiencing it well and i think that's why we like black and white evil versus you know, good, uh, heaven and hell, because it gives us very simple, like I said, very easy answers to complicated questions. It's a a psychology and why people do things is complicated. (laughs) If nothing, if you get nothing else out of the six part thing on Manson, it's like, he was complicated. Yes, there, he became very predictable in the end, but it was it was, it's complex. His structure is Mm -hmm. complex, just like with all of us. Um, so that's one part of it is that we like easy answers to complicated questions. And I mean, it's also, I think maybe that we, we related to the women that he manipulated, um, and the fear that was there. Um, we'd all like to think Like as Kathy was saying before, we'd all like to think that we're impervious to deception, you know, independent minded, safe from manipulation. Like we can't have that in our lives. We're all too smart for that. Right. But it's quite and it's quite the ego hit. I can tell you because I'm I'm susceptible to it, too. And I, I, I would argue that most of us are. It's quite the ego hit when you realize that you're not. But
1: right. You know? a- a- absolutely. I would also add um, the whole trauma by seduction, mm. right, where mm. Manson represented sex. Yeah, which absolutely. Who, what? No offense, American audience. We just say that word and everyone's intrigued. We're, mm-hmm. I mean, we're pretty one dimensional that way. So, mm-hmm. you know, Manson represented sex and at a time where sex was uh, very taboo. So he brought in a sedu- a seductive piece to it. It wasn't just violence. It wasn't about, it wasn't like Hitler where it was just domination and I'm going to yeah. say this. It was very seductive.
0: Yeah. And
1: it, it, even, you know, we talk a lot about horror movies on this um, on this podcast. Uh, violence and sex are oftentimes used together, mm-hmm. um, destructively. But Manson found a way to bring that together and used sex um, as a way to lure people in and and Allowed him to seem less—I don't know—threatening or whatever. But oh yeah, no.
0: There. I mean, don't please, please don't forget that before there were these murders, there was two years of orgies and sexual conquest and pleasure and love and all of this. uh, Dopamine surge. Yeah, before the six months where it deteriorated very quickly into paranoia and domination. Mm -hmm. But there was. There was a lot of seduction. there was a, definitely a lot of seduction and I mean, I think you know when you say violence and sex, we, we, we fear we are both
1: afraid and we're fascinated by those two things, and so and they're all oftentimes used together, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that the, one of the easiest ways to get into the mind is is through the body, and right. that's what he did. I think that the cult
0: members are, all, are because of the things we were just talking about, I think they're familiar to us and we relate to them. In other words, they were, if if you look just on the surface, they were average young American girls and I would imagine a lot of young American girls at the time that was both fascinating and scary to them that that was them. So we're really sort of fascinated by ourselves, right? Like there's us on the screen Mm -hmm. with the cult leader Mm -hmm. in the, and that was not something we saw a lot of, um, at the time. And, and, and maybe is it that at the time there were a lot of people looking for what Charlie had to offer? You know, a lot of people were taken in by him in the beginning of the trial, um, you know, he's diminutive, diminutive. sorry, he's like 5'2", he's little, he was like, he looked like a sign of the times, this little hippie, skinny, guy, skinny, yeah. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are always looking for faith in something. And so, if they, if, you know, maybe they're looking for that. Maybe there's something in what Charlie had to offer that, uh, you know, that people were interested in. Um so let's and and by way of that like let's look at what a cult is. So cult qualities, right? An infallible charismatic leader. Mm. Check. You know, think about the cults you know about. Mm-hmm. Uh, um two, members that are seeking clarity, community, faith, um some sort of universal commitment, mm-hmm. spiritual enlightenment, whatever. Yeah. Um and then there are always a few members that align themselves with the leader and mirror them exactly. So that would be kind of, I guess, Susan Atkins, Squeaky From, some of the different members we've talked about, Linda Kasabian. Um, so the other thing I would say is that not all cults are violent, uh, but danger comes in in the coercion and control and so we have that in this cult. there was coercion, there was control, there was isolation, there was violence. I mean, Charlie beat them he would there was domestic violence involved in the situation um and financial domination. you know we've told a couple of stories about how it's like go to this guy and get his money and that kind of thing. So there was a certain amount of funding that was going on to feed them all. Um, so what's the difference between religions and cults? Because I, I can imagine that, you know, if you're listening to that list and you're involved in religion, you could think, oh, an infallible charismatic leader. Mm-hmm. Religions have those. Absolutes. Uh, Ideal- Ideology is the only answer. Right. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. The uh, easy answers to complicated questions mm-hmm. thing. Um, members that are seeking clarity or spiritual fellowship or community.
1: And um, some religions faith. do
0: overlap in cults. Yeah. And and then what? Oh, some members who align themselves with the leader and mirror them exactly. Okay, well, that would be priests or mm-hmm. pr- preachers or um, pastors. So, so then what are the differences between religions and cults? Well, one of the things is that with religions, uh, you have 10 million people in well-funded buildings worshiping. And with cults, you've got 15 people on a ranch playing dress-up, you know? It's like size
1: uh, yeah i and think is one of the things i think there's in, in at least in healthy religions there's room for individuality mm-hmm. uh where in cults there's not it's it's you're acting in the interest of that group and and only that group and there's no room for individu individuation
0: right exact mirroring is what's expected i think you're absolutely right um Religions also have you worshiping a deity or a God, and you're putting your faith in the, in a concept. And cults have you putting your faith in the cult leader. So it's like a cult would be if the priest was the God. Warren Jeffs. Yeah, there you go. Um, and they tend, uh, cults tend to be totalitarian, uh, meaning like what you were saying, Um Absolutes mm-hmm. it's one thing or the other, mm-hmm. um, and then they also have a double set of ethics, which I think is interesting, so uh, religions have a set of ethics that you 're following mm-hmm. usually that a book tells you that you know there's their doctrine, and cults have actually a double set of ethics, so they have the truth that's um in the group or the ethics that are inside the group, and then you lie to everyone else and you trick the outside mm-hmm. world, so it's like tell the truth with us and only us and lie to everyone else in your life and manipulate the outside world. And that's where the elitism comes. So all members are special and above everyone else in the world, which for them justifies the lies that they tell the outside world. And that's what we see with the elitism, where... Um, You know, we're better. And so tell the truth to each other and lie to everyone else. And, you know, Charlie talks about that all the time. He says in the very repetitive interviews over the years, Mm -hmm. he, one of his lines is to say that, you know, these, these people just wanted someone to tell them the truth. They'd been lied to all their lives and I told them the truth. Mm. And, and then if you go back to his childhood, he talks about how my mother always lied I ne- You know, after the age of 10 or whatever, I never believed her anymore. I never believed anyone after that. Like, mm-hmm. I was lied to my whole life. So that truth-lie
1: thing is, you know, is in line with what we know about Manson, too. I also wanted to add, too, with cults, there's always some sort of motivation for destruction, mm-hmm. um, which you don't often see, in at least in healthy-ish religions, where, you know, it really is about peace, acceptance, love um cults will use that as a way to lure but oftentimes there's an ultimate goal of some sort of destruction. Yeah, I mean they're not always violent.
0: No, C- it may, cults,
1: it may not be physically. No.
0: Yeah. They're not always violent. They're just they're not always It could be destruction of people. themselves. Yeah, yeah. You know, right? like the destruction uh, of the ego for sure, right? right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Um there's also a goal um of there's always a goal of more members which I guess that has in common with um, religion Religion. and power and money for the cult leaders, which also has some Mm -hmm. ties to certain religions where um, that have been, uh, I guess, taken advantage of. We've all heard of the sort of the Tammy Faye Mm -hmm. situations where, the leaders of a particular church have gotten into more cult-like behavior. So they're after power and money and all of that. So I think that's where you you make the distinction. So hopefully we're breaking down some of the distinctions so that when your own belief system, that's how to figure out whether or not you're sitting in a cult-like atmosphere or in a religious-type atmosphere, which could be very healing and Mm -hmm. faith is often in psychological terms listed as a protective measure, as a right. protective factor right. for people who have faith. Um, they recruit deceptively. Cults recruit deceptively. Uh, people don't initially understand what the bottom line is. They will seduce you with one thing, and they have an ulterior bottom line. And so we see that in Manson, obviously. And the leader grows more wealthy and powerful, but lies to his followers, um, that it's not for them, like that it's for the cause, you know?
1: Yeah. And at the same time, um, a cult leader won't ever, um, be, put themselves in a position to be equal or, um, you know, will never allow them to be, allow themselves to be under any scrutiny or be judged where, you know, there are a lot of religions like that as well, but, um, there's nothing wrong with them, right? The the problem is the outside. Wherein, mm-hmm. Not in all religions, because there are religions like that too with religious leaders, sure, but course. a lot of religions, you know, the, the pastors or whatever will say, hey, you know, we're all sinners, or we're all this, or we're mm-hmm. all that. Um, it's not like that with them. They are like the Messiah, quote unquote, and you must respect their perfection. And Well,
0: whatnot. it's interesting because that plays into the elitism that I was talking about. It's like, that's the con, right, is that they want you to believe that we're all together in this telling uh-huh. the truth to each other. But actually what's really happening is they're lying to you, too, right. about the bottom line about and they're elitist above you as well, because they think they're better than you right. as the cult leader. Right. So it's like this two degrees of <laughs> elitism, which, of course, is a mixture of, you know, we are. Bo- so all of this said, you know, we're fascinated and fearful of these things and i think that things that we're fascinated by and that we're fearful of just like you were equating it to sex we want more of Mm -hmm. we want more you know we want more sex and violence in the movies because we're both fascinated and afraid of it and that combination in the brain (laughs) as we know big dose of dopamine yeah we got that big dopamine hit that makes us go happy dance when we when we have fascination and fear together that's a that's a big dopamine rush um and I also think, and I'll and I'll close with this unless you have something else to add, Kathy, is that these murders and Manson was fifty years ago when it was first happening, Manson was also able to keep himself in the public eye for those fifty years. But it's not ancient history. In other words, there are people still alive that remember it when it was happening live mm-hmm. in front of them. And so the fascination of that will continue as long as there are people that are alive to remember the events Absolutely. of
1: 1969. So, I know this is not comparable, but it's like September 11th. Yes, you know? I, I was mean, thinking it, that actually when I was saying it. When things come up, it's like, oh, I remember where it was, I remember the news, I remember the fear. Yeah. So Yeah, you
0: remember where you were. And I'm sure Those younger generations have, you know their things different things Mm -hmm. um so i think we covered sort of a -hmm. lot of the reasons why we might be fascinated with manson so we're going to take a little bit of a break again and we'll come back and we'll talk about a bunch of actually interesting things that you guys should go check out that i discovered while doing research for this this six-part series so we'll be back in a second Hi, everybody. We're back. Shannon and Kathy with Terror Talk for the last segment of today's show and the last segment of this six-part the- series. It has been a journey. It has been a journey down the rabbit hole of Charles Manson, which I need a break from. You did awesome work on this, though. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. It's really it's fascinating. Um And I learned a lot more. I already knew a lot about it, but I learned a lot more doing yeah. this. So. Mm-hmm. It's been actually very enjoyable having conversations with you about mm-hmm. it instead of living in a vacuum with this information. <laughs> kind of, that's kind of creepy. <laughs> just like yeah. reading books about I just, it. I just have it. I just hold it. I just have it. It's in me. Yeah, no, it's over now. So that's good. Mm-hmm. I've gotten it out. I've good. got it all out. So, one of the things I did want to share with everyone is some ways that you could deepen your learning into this particular topic, should you so choose or if it's relevant to things you're studying or interests you have. So a couple of things you might not have heard of, and then some that you may have. So we're going to go over it a little bit. The first thing I would say uh, is there is a TED Talk by Diane Scotter, I believe is the way you pronounce that. Um, just look for a TED Talk and then put, I think, cult leaders or it's Diane how you spell Diane, and then Ben Scotter, B-E-N-S-C-O-T-E-R. She wrote a book called Shoes of the Servant. She was a Mooney. And for those of you who don't know, it was a cult that followed Sun Myung Moon. Forgive me for the pronunciation. <laughs> I tried really hard. Who said he was the second coming of Christ, as they sort of all do, apparently, because Manson was saying that in the end as well. Um, Anyway, she was in the Moonies for several years, and then she was deprogrammed. Her parents put her in several different programs, and it took about five years, but they did something called deprogramming, and so this is an interesting continuation of this kind of research. If you're interested in continuing your knowledge and research on how... We developed systems to deal with cult followers and work with cult followers and and that came out of a cult. What ended up happening as we were talking about how Manson had sort of started off this this idea of having cults in America. And then there were several more, Jim Jones, etc. And so what happens to that? We, we as psychologists and as communities, we say, well, how are we going to combat this? And we figure out ways to do that. And so she actually became
1: a deprogrammer after she was deprogrammer. I actually know a therapist who does this, oh, who okay. actually um, mm-hmm. works with families, who... Um, they want certain family members to come out of cults Mm -hmm. she actually is a therapist for that okay and i'm
0: sure it has changed over the years so at this point she stopped being a deprogrammer because she was arrested for kidnapping and then and then she quit because (laughs) (laughs) because at the time many of the cases were involuntary so to speak um they would kidnap the child or the young adult out of the cult and then commence with the deprogramming. Because like a
1: conversion therapy.
0: Yeah, because the kid didn't want to leave. It wasn't like the kid or the young person was coming out saying, I think this is wrong and I'm going to please deprogram me. They were having to save, literally, the idea of sort of going in combat style and saving the person Mm -hmm. and then deprogramming them. So she was arrested for kidnapping and um, she decided to quit that work at that point. But the TED Talk is really interesting because she talks about the burning, her burning question of how did this happen to me? And I think that's what we were just talking about with Manson is like, how did it happen to these specific people? And we tried to address that a little bit in the series about why these particular women or men were taken into um, Manson's fold. But she talks a lot about a lot about that and out of how out of, a wound, um, she was trying to attempt to understand or what happened to her brain in that. In other words, she came from the perspective of how is it that my brain let me do this and other people's brains didn't let them do this. And, and she's found some interesting answers to that. So I, I support you going and watching that the Ted talks very quick. And then she wrote a memoir, which is the shoes of the servant, which I have not read yet, but I'm going to, um, and she came to the realization that she understood what it was like to be someone who thought at one point that it would have been wrong not to save the world through genocide and yeah. that's one of the things she kind of came to realize about herself is that that's she knew that she could understand that mm-hmm. um, and that's what made her probably a good deprogrammer because she really understood what they were going through mm-hmm. she really understood that that she literally thought it would be wrong not to save the world and I think that is where Manson's followers were coming from in their in their um when they were at the height of their brainwashed brains Mm -hmm. is that it's like no we're going to start this genocide and we're going to save the world um and they truly believe that so she discusses what's called a viral memetic and uh, infection basically or a meme Which, you know, we we think of memes as different things these days, but stick with me. Uh, A meme is, uh, there are ideas that replicate in the human brain and then move from brain to brain, like a virus. And what we know about viruses is that compromised immune systems are more susceptible to a virus. So it's just interesting to think about that as far as with cults, cult leaders, vulnerabilities, and how... Her brain's going to look different than other brains. It's just interesting. So check it out. Check out her memoir. And then you can go into that rabbit hole yourselves rabbit hole yourselves, and tell us all about it. Because I'm not going there right now. Um, the other thing I would say to check out is Margaret Thaler Singer. She wrote a book called Cults in Our Midst. And she's a clinical psychologist. And she started studying cults actually in the 1950s with uh, prisoners of war. And so... Um, Manson, Jim Jones, the Patty Hearst story. What she's famous for is that she testified for Patty Hearst, uh, in defensive, actually, that she was not in control of her actions and that she was brainwashed. The idea of brainwashing started to Mm come, that, that word started to come in. And, um, the, as you know, the court went the other way. Well, maybe you don't know the court went the other way and Mm -hmm. Patty Hearst was found guilty of her crimes and, um, if you don't know who Patty Hearst is, you know, Google. So she is really interesting because she was a clinical psychologist and there was a lot of, um, controversy about what she said and did. Um, but so that, that's an interesting book. And then I would add that some of the stuff I used for this was, uh, I, obviously I lot, watched a lot of archival footage that it's easily found and was mentioned along the way. I also uh, reread Helter Skelter, which is Vincent Bugliosi's book. I would also say there's a book um, by uh, Manson's former prisoner counsel called Taming of the Beast. And, uh, let's see, who is it by? Edward George is the guy's name. So that was an interesting one I thought. And then there's another one called Member of the Family, and it's by Diane Lake. And she was a member of the Manson mm-hmm. family that got out Beforehand, And there's been some, actually, some good interviews of hers, too. Mm-hmm. I've heard of her. Um, there, Everybody's written a book. So Tex wrote a book. And oh. <laughs> you can definitely find information from all vantage points. Um, I'm just saying a few of the ones that I've actually read and, and thought were interesting. I haven't read Tex's book. I, I got some quotes from it, but that would be an interesting one because he was the most violent yes. of all of them so that might be an interesting one the other thing I would say is there's a lot of fictional accounts of Manson and um, documentaries docu-series different things so recently I know that um, Aquarius is a tv Mm -hmm. show that didn't do very well wasn't
1: great it wasn't great I was pulled in the first few episodes and then it sort of and then it became more about David Duchovny
0: you know, who I like Yeah, but, but. I
1: wanted more Manson
0: So, hm, there it is So that's an option uh, In 1976, like shortly after the trials I guess not even five years They started making movies So there's one called Helter, Helter Skelter That came out in 1976 Which was the story of the Manson trial uh, I haven't watched it in a long time But I think it starts with the arrests And then the trial or flashbacks mm-hmm. I, I have to watch that one, yeah Yeah, I haven't watched it in a while Um, There's several shows. The Ben Stiller Show did an episode on Manson. Um, South Park has done episodes. There was a new Helter Skelter in 2004 that, uh, I wouldn't say it was better. (laughs) I don't know. Watch it yourself and and tell me. There's um, a Canadian indie film called Manson, My Name is Evil, but that's more about Leslie Van Houten than, than Manson, but, of course, he's there. Um... Aquarius was 2015. American Horror Story, uh, which we've talked a little bit about before, but I don't know that we've done a we full even episode. We have talked about Cult. Cult was a...
1: Um, we talked about Apocalypse. We didn't talk about
0: cult. That's right. Yeah. So, Cult was also a season of American Horror Story that deals with Manson. Um, and Mindhunter... Ooh.
1: So Mindhunter is... It's like the beginning of forensic psychology. It's why <laughs> you know? I love it. It's, it's, where, I it's where my whole field came from. I mean, it, not from the show, clearly, but the decade <laughs> of how and why it was even conceived and, mm-hmm. and why there was a need for law enforcement to understand the psychology of crime because up until that point, people were seen as all good or all bad and it was a lot of religion based or good versus evil Mm -hmm. and the first season of Mindhunter really speaks to the psychology behind crime and that's I think why I loved it so much they show how the
0: behavioral unit was created and it's it's really good it was 2017 it's Mindhunter one word And it's on Netflix. It's a crime series, basically, fictionalized, but pulling from real life based on type of stuff. And season two is going to come out in what, August? August? Yeah, Mm -hmm. August. And we've already programmed an episode where we're going to talk about uh, both seasons in Mm -hmm. August because we love it. Mm -hmm. Um, There's one thing I would mention, too, is I had the unfortunate um, idea to watch a recent movie called The Haunting of Sharon Tate Mm
1: -hmm.
0: because I thought... Was that a sundance uh I don't know no, I don't okay. think so um i I don't remember which streaming series is on uh, streaming um, system <laughs> yeah, I've lost the word live stream uh, whatever. not livestream. I don't know if it's on Netflix or whatever but um, All that crap yeah yeah uh it's on one of those because I didn't have to pay for it additionally, thank God, but um it's with Hillary Duff, so oh. So there's that. But I saw the title and I was like, wow, we're doing a series on Manson. Mm -hmm. The Haunting of Sharon Tate sounds like a horror movie. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's a blend going on here. Maybe this would be an interesting thing to mention. Well, it became an interesting thing to mention because I would really say don't go there. So my problems with it are that there is a lot of accuracy it's fictionalized, but there is a lot of accuracy to what they do. They literally pulled like quotes that really happened, things, a lot of things that really happen. Um, and normally that wouldn't be a bad thing. They use some real archival footage, but unfortunately it's, I mean, besides being slow and boring, like, I mean, who cares necessarily about my movie opinions, but my issue is that it was violent And for the sake of violence. And it was... Shock value. Heart-wrenching. They literally went into every detail of the murders. And I didn't see why. Mm -hmm. Shock value. And it was all under the guise of that Sharon Tate was... Haunted and knew it was going to happen before it happened. Mm-hmm. That she had a premonition that it was all going to happen. And this is kind of documented where she'd had this bad dream. And mm-hmm. so they're taking that sort of real life sadness mm-hmm. and then exploiting it. And they exploited it. And it felt, you know, you guys see it and, you know,
1: have your own opinions, whatever. But. Um, well, this is where I think going back to the. No offense to anyone out there that might qualify for this, but the dumb American audience where horror is good if it's just exploitative and disgusting. And um, there are people who love that just for the sake of violence without any sort of real story. Um, And there are series of movies made like that. Was not a fan of Hostel for that reason. I'm Mm -hmm. like, loved Saw yeah saw had a good story, yeah hostile to me personally, my opinion, it was a piece of shit film because it was just about how much can we scare the shit out of people without a real story and I think what that when people do films like that, I don't even call it a film, but they it, it's it's it cheapens what could be really terrorizing and scary and um and it just uses certain elements just for shock value and I hate that so much
0: yeah and i and I guess i I give the disclaimer that. I watched it in the middle of all of this, right? In the middle of doing this psychological unpacking of Charlie Manson and all of the victims involved. And so I can cop to the fact that I'm, I'm, you know, waist deep in empathy for all of the players mm-hmm. and the victims. And I, I just couldn't it was like I couldn't tolerate it. So, you know, I copped to that. Maybe it was bad timing, but I mean, I don't think it's a particularly good movie either, but this, this piece of it that I have a problem with. So, so there that, and it just happens to be the most recent piece of fiction about Manson. So I wanted to mention it.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, Okay. What do we think in retrospect? I think that I learned a lot from working on this. I I very much enjoyed having conversations with you about mm-hmm. it and sharing it with um, quite a, a lot of people that have been tuning in and listening to the podcast. And I, I really appreciate that because I think we do work hard, too.
1: Yeah, you worked really hard on this. I think I was telling you this before we were recording, but um, I intentionally did not do a lot of research because I sort of wanted to experience what our audience might be experiencing listening to it um, just in an organic sense of like what comes up for me as I'm hearing this trajectory not just from a psychologist point of view but just from a human standpoint of um, I I, you know when I work when I talk to my students I'm, I'm a professor and I'll and I often will say there will be cases that you have that you don't think people are are capable of doing such things and and even though we know Manson's story to a certain extent i think listening to this just really highlights the fact that there are people out there who have done things that we don't think are humanly possible and when we really talk about it in the the detail that we have over these past 6 episodes it really highlights the complexity of humanity and sort of highlighting again what you had said, which is this guy wasn't just born with evil; he was born in in certain circumstances and situations. Maybe in conjunction with, you know, neurological or innate sort of um, tendencies. Tendencies. Thank you. Thank you. Or predestination, however you want to look at it. Um, he was a human being. He was a baby born into this world, and due to these circumstances, he became what we consider pure evil. And that's just crazy to me. Mm -hmm. My goal was to provide as much
0: uh, information for us to discuss the psychological aspects of this case and the people involved in it and to unpack a little bit so that we can understand that this is a more complex uh, case and more complex people and motivations than simply a mass murderer or a serial killer uh, and and that's all it is, you know, this was a, there was a, a complicated system of organization that they had, and a lot of motivation and manipulation along the way, and a lot of shame, and a lot of um, psychological groundwork for each and every person that was involved mm-hmm. in this. And, and hopefully we gave you some answer to some of your questions. We really appreciate you listening. And I have to say that next week... (laughs) We're going to lighten it up. We're going to lighten it up a bit. We're going to do some summer camp horror movies. And for those of you who are only interested in horror crime, let me just say, horror or true crime, let me just say that the summer camp horror movies...
1: The, The 80s summer slasher slash horror camp whatever, they're pretty amusing. Yeah, it's pretty good stuff. So... You know, just as we did with the
0: Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day to You episode, (laughs) I, I have to say our personalities probably come out more in those kinds of episodes than they do in any other kind of episodes that we do. So we enjoy them because... You know, we all need a little balance. I feel like I'm in Manson's head. This is what head. we're going to call our self-care episode. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everyone. Yeah. We just need a little cleanse. a little summer fun, yeah. a little <laughs> cleanse. And, um, and with that, this is Tarot Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. If you enjoyed this show, there are two things you could do for us. Subscribing and sharing our episodes on social media, as well as writing a review on iTunes. Plus, you could check out our Patreon page. Don't hesitate to contact us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We upload new episodes of Terror Talk every Wednesday and of Shrink Chat every Friday. Until then, goodbye and have a pleasant tomorrow.